Second Captains on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello there, Radio 1 listeners, and welcome to a brand new series of Second Captain Saturday. We're going to be with you every weekend for the next couple of months. I've got to say, it feels so good to be back. Oh, McDevitt here with Kieran Murphy. Hey, Murph. Hey, Owen. How's it going? It is indeed very good to be back. It is. I know what you're thinking at home now. I know what you're thinking. Second Captain Saturday. Isn't that the show where they pick a fascinating person each week from all different walks of life, then spend an hour chatting to them about their lives and careers, while also talking about sport and how that has impacted them in ways both big and small? Hmm. Yeah. That's uh, some impressive recall, if that's exactly what you're thinking there. <laughs> Extremely detailed recollection of what we do here. That is it. Yeah, that is it. In a nutshell, we've had Pulitzer Prize-winning authors, Oscar-nominated directors, world-renowned architects, US senators, UN ambassadors, you name it, we've had them on the show. But all those honours pale in insignificance compared to what's on the line when they appear on this very programme. Because as soon as our guest has finished telling us about their own sporting highlight and their achievements, Murph will then rank this sporting life of each guest as they vie for the title of second cap greatest non-sports person, sports person 2022. Murph, can you please remind us of the intense competition for this prize in previous years? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Well, on last year's champion was the author Malcolm Gladwell with a score of 88 points. That points total was matched by another series winner from years past, the artist Dorothy Cross. Pretty impressive scoring. Richard Ford got 85 points for a one-handed baseball catch in the bleachers of Wrigley Field in Chicago. But others have not been quite so lucky. Orla Guerin got 64 points for her, well, quite frankly, rather lacklustre sporting pedigree, which basically amounted to trying fencing once and having a lot of Irish passports. Passports. I do remember this. Yeah, she tried Mm. to classify that as a sport or as some sort of yeah, competitive en- endeavour, which maybe some people would view it as, I suppose. I don't think this would stand up in her journalistic book. So I'm basically only holding her yeah. to her own standards. You know, and, and in the long run, she was disappointed, but she understood where I was coming from. <laughs> the competition this year, it's going to be fierce from week one because we have an unbelievable guest for our opening show. We're massive fans of this guy for the amazing novels that he's written, like High Fidelity and About a Boy, the movies that he's adapted for the screen, including Brooklyn, and of course, his memoir of life as an obsessive Arsenal supporter, Fever Pitch, one of the greatest sports books of all time, which celebrates its 30th birthday this year. Nick Hornby is our first guest of the season, Murph. This is, this is so exciting for so many reasons, some of which I've outlined there. Fever Pitch is one of the most impactful books about sport ever written. And not really just sport, but its place in the wider culture. We're talking about a publishing phenomenon when it first came out, Fever Pitch. It came at such an interesting point in the history of English football uh, where it had been coming out of, and indeed the book dealt with, the hooliganism and violence that marked English football in the 1970s and 1980s. It was released in 1992. The Premier League was just about to start. Mm. And the book was so successful um, that... Along with David Bedil, another former guest we had here, and Frank Skinner, their show Fantasy Football League, people started ascribing basically the gentrification of football to this novel and to a lesser extent to that television show. And 
that's a massive overreach in a lot of ways because the the money that came into the Premier League obviously changed things absolutely completely. But I think it speaks to just how kind of across the culture fever pitch was. Um, people were ma- making these assumptions that the success of the book was down to middle-class readers who became drawn to the game. Such was the the power of the book, yeah. as opposed to this idea that you know football fans were also capable of reading a book. You know, the existing football fans, they were also capable of reading a book. But this is what we're talking about, kind of uh, just a publishing phenomenon of the early 90s. And obviously, it was the launchpad for, you know, what has been an an amazing career across a number of different uh, fields. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to say Nick turns the rational part of his brain off when following his team, but he writes this about his superstitions in Fever Pitch. I have tried smoking goals in. Arsenal once scored as three of us were lighting cigarettes and eating cheese and onion crisps at a certain point in the first half. I have tried not setting the video for live games. I have tried lucky socks and lucky shirts and lucky friends and have attempted to exclude others who I feel bring with them nothing but trouble for the team. <laughs> so that, that was his mindset, certainly... 30 years ago. We're going to talk to him about that and so much more today. Our plan then for the next couple of months is great guests, idiotic ranking system, but also some great music every week, starting this afternoon with something from Prince, which ties in very nicely with our guest today, as you're about to hear. Get in touch by email, editor at secondcaptains.com, tweet at secondcaptains, Nick Hornby, coming right up on Second Captain Saturday. That's a cracking tune, isn't it? Raspberry Beret by Prince, who just happens to be one of the subjects of an upcoming work by today's guest on Second Captain Saturday. He's indeed our first guest of the new series, and what a way to start. Nick Hornby is the author of many of our favourite books here at Second Captains, including Fever Pitch, which remains the gold standard for writing about sport 30 years on. He's a two-time Oscar-nominated screenwriter who brought Colm Tobin's words so vividly to life in the movie Brooklyn. And just to further butter up our Irish audience here, word has it that his mother once owned two cats named after Liam Brady and David O'Leary. Nick, you're very welcome to the show. That's quite right, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there was a time when my whole life was Irish. <laughs> Go on then, how so? Well, Pat Jennings, Pat Rice, yeah. Sammy Nelson, David O'Leary, <laughs> Liam Brady. Who else did we have? Frank Stapleton. Frank Stapleton. Yeah, it was seven, I think, at one stage. <laughs> did the cats share any traits of Liam Brady's or David O'Leary's? Any personality traits? Yeah, one was good at clearing the corners, you know, nodding away. And the <laughs> other one had a magic left foot and used to set the other cat free. So it was, they were perfectly <laughs> named. Was the Liam Brady one quite grumpy as well, no? <laughs> Liam's not grumpy. I, I, I speak to Liam a bit. He's not grumpy. Yeah. He's straight talking. Straight talking. You're He's right. He's straight talking, yeah, yeah. man. <laughs> we'll talk about Fever Pitch a little later, but you've got a new book coming out in October, uh, hence the tune that we picked out there. The blurb we have for it from Penguin is, in Nick Hornby's completely joyous and original new book, two great figures share the stage, Charles Dickens and Prince, which is very intriguing. What brings these two characters together? Well... I started thinking about them when um, 
Prince's Sign of the Times box set came out about two years ago. I don't know if you've had a look at that, but it came with, uh, I think it's 86 new songs that uh, he recorded at the time. And 86 turns out to be, like, that's more than the Eagles recorded in the 1970s, the whole yeah. of the 1970s. Yeah. And Prince recorded that extra for a double album. Um, and he was making two or three albums at once, you know, with different tones and uh, different voices. And I thought, wow, who else did that? And then I remember that Dickens used to write two books at once. You know, he'd be finishing the serialization of one while he was beginning the serialization of the next. And I thought they're the only two people I know who could separate two different works in their brains and keep worth working on them at the same time. I can write two novels at once. And these are massive novels with millions of characters in each. And I started to think about what else they had in common, apart from this incredible uh, over-creativity, over-production. And it turned out to be quite a few things. Um, they, they both died just before they were 60 and probably work killed both of them. I mean, Prince was addicted to painkillers because of his knees and hips from dancing. Uh, Dickens had a massive stroke from overwork. Um, they both, like uh, Oliver Twist and Purple Rain, they were both 25 um, when those things <laughs> happened. Uh, they were famous all their lives, right from the beginning, right the way through. They both had sort of abject poverty in their uh, childhoods. And so I started writing little essays about money, work. Oh, they both had big rows with publishers and record companies. Uh, so mm. it just switches like that. The title of it is uh, Dickens and Prince, a particular type of genius. You know, Charles Dickens is obviously one of the most important figures in the history of the English language. But do you put Prince on a similar pedestal just in, in his own context? In music, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think he he changed music in in lots of ways. But that fusion of rock and funk and um, allowing black artists to go in a million different directions at once. Um, I think that that was uh, he was a very important influence on generation after generation of musicians. It's obvious, you know, the esteem in which you hold music and pop music to call it that. You know, going back to high fidelity in our consciousness and obviously a lot further than that in your own life. What is it about popular music that you find uh, to be that gives you such joy? I guess the, the hookiness, the instant attraction to pop music comes from its, uh, you know, the three, the perfect three minute pop song. It's an inspiration for me, a constant inspiration. There was some, there was a critic who said that all art aspires to the condition of music. And I can really see that, that uh, certainly in my own writing, I know that it, it's a musicality that I want. I want the feelings that um, people get from pop music. I want them to get it from books. So, you know, elation, sadness, humour, um, th these, these are all very important things to me. Uh, you've said that, that music, unlike movies or books, doesn't improve when it's more complicated or more intelligent. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that, you know, the, the chords that you've got to play with are complicated things in themselves. And, and, you know, there are 26 letters of the alphabet and endless permutations, obviously, that allow people to create. And it's the same thing 
with chords. Um, I, I use music not because I want it to make me think. Um, I want to feel from music. And, um, uh, and I, I think the more direct way of doing that is, is, is the best way. I, I went to see a, a band last week and you know, it was incredibly primitive and incredibly powerful. Uh, I mean, the, the guy, the lead guitarist is an incredible guitar player. It's a guy called James Walburn, who's the pretenders guitarist. But he's doing this kind of souped up rock and roll. And once again, I thought, I, there's nowhere else I'd rather be than listening <laughs> to him play covers of Eddie Cochran. Comparing two of your great loves then, Nick, or your great obsessions, really, music and football, is there less of an edge to people's obsessiveness with music? Is it in some ways more benign and less toxic in comparison to football, do you reckon? Uh, I think everything about music is more benign. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, the biggest thing for me is that it, I only get depressed by, by music if I choose to listen to depressing music. Um, you know, it's entirely in my own control. So all music is pure pleasure all the time. And here we are, um, you know, getting towards the end of July, a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, and I, I've got a back-to-school tummy ache feeling. It's like, oh, really? I've got to go through that again? Yeah. And the inevitable disappointment and listening to people get angry and the pointless conversations. Um, <laughs> so you've got the tribalism and the hate, with other teams, but you've also got the the depression of, of supporting a team that you know isn't going to do that much. Well, you never know. There have been one or two. You never know. You never know. <laughs> God, you literally couldn't write a better line for like the end of July than, well, you know, you, you never, never know. know. You've got you a chance. Know. You know. <laughs> Gabriel Jesus has been seasonal. Yeah, yeah, very seasonal. It is 30 years. I mentioned 30 years now since Fever Pitch. I don't know if that has given you, have you started thinking back to the time of writing that book and the impact that it had on your life when it came out 30 years ago? I think Fever Pitch had a particularly uh, unique uh, effect for me. Um, there, hadn't, there hadn't been a book like it. There's lots of books that are like all my novels. <laughs> novels are novels. Um, but uh, nobody had written, I don't think, in that way about the relationship between fan and club in, in quite the same way. And because that had a particular impact on fandom and the world of publishing then it made it much easier for me to get a first novel published whereas my first novel probably would have been high fidelity and maybe it would have had impact but first novels they struggle to get that kind of recognition and pe people will a lot of people will be familiar with the basics of fever pitch how arsenal came into your life as a young boy with parents who had separated your dad is basically just looking for something some way to kill the time I guess and some yeah, sort of a bonding yeah. experience there yeah. brings you to hyper you become absolutely intoxicated is it possible to convey now just how intense you were about it as a child how serious you were about the football because it wasn't you know you're going through a tough time for a kid but it wasn't escapism I guess in the way that we would sort of look at escapism as something fun to do it was it was quite a serious venture from the start wasn't it I think, you know, as I was saying before, that's the thing about football fandom is it, it is serious for most people and it, 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 it doesn't bring a lot of joy, actually. And it's certainly not escapist. It's, it's another version of the miserable world outside, <laughs> outside the stadium, really. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, the first time I was sort of, it was like a thunderbolt. And, and, and then I started, you know, going on my own or occasionally with, with someone else, but, you know, and getting there an hour and a half early because that was what it was like when it was terraces and feeling sick for that entire time. Um, it didn't matter that, that the game wasn't important because, you know, if you're, if it's December and you're going to finish sixth, then it, it's quite hard for most people to get worked up about a regular league game. But I was, everything was on them winning. And uh, uh, I, I started going to away games. I, I spent a lot of my life um, travelling up and down. Um, and it was a very violent time. I mean, I, 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 I was a teenager in the 70s and you really had to keep yourself safe and, and, and watch out. Like you couldn't wear uh, a replica shirt or a scarf um, outside of the stadium. You couldn't even uh, wear it once, once you got off the Arsenal bit of the tube, if you were crossing London on the tube. You had to hide everything because there'd be Chelsea fans, there'd be West Ham fans and anyone would have a go at you. Uh, so um, there were lots of ways in which it wasn't an awful lot of fun, <laughs> but um, I was incredibly committed to it. You, you really were. You, you went all in. I mean, in, as going as far as to to take on the accent, you weren't from North London, but you made yourself almost believe that you were, I think. Well, it was the, it's the curse of the suburbs, really. You're halfway between everything. My, I think we all wobbled around. Um, you know, you, you chose to go up or down uh, because what you were was so indistinct and undefined um, in, a, in a kind of commuter town. So, yeah, I chose to, I chose to get as close to North London as I could. That, that's really interesting to us as Irish people because, you know, for better or worse, our identity is our identity. You know what I mean? We yeah. are Irish people and like th- that, people. that has traveled around the world as an identity, as a very distinct yeah. identity. That idea about a white South of England, middle class English man and woman. What is their identity? What are we? Yeah, yeah what are we? And um, I think you can see that, um, you know, in other, other walks of life. And, you know, I, I just watched those uh, four BBC Rolling Stones documentaries. I don't know if you've seen them. But, you know, Dartford, where Mick and Keith came from, was not so different. And even within the band, you know, Mick was a grammar school boy and Keith failed his 11 plus or didn't take it. I can't remember which. Um, so there were class distinctions there, but neither of them wanted to be from Dartford. They wanted to be blues singers. They wanted to be something else. And that constant search for uh, roots and authenticity that that you don't really have uh, when when you're born in the southeast of England, I think is really interesting. Did football work as a means to bring you and your dad together? Uh, to a certain extent, um, he didn't care as much as I did. And I mean, the problem with my relationship with my dad is he lived in a different country um, for you know, from when I was about eight to when I was about 20. Uh, and so the relationship was sort of scuppered by his not being around. Um, so the football helped. But by the time I was old enough to go 
on my own. I was really committed to standing on the North Bank at Arsenal. He, he always wanted to go in the seat. So um, I, I, I was quite happy when he he said, well, I'll see you afterwards or something like that, because I, I, I wanted to do do it my way. Having your parents separate, Nick, it's always going to be a very difficult thing for a young person to deal with. Your situation was also complicated by the fact that you found out that your dad had had a second family. How do you look back now on what must have been a really tough time for you as a teenager? It's very hard to, I think, look back on one's life and say, I wish that hadn't happened. Uh, Because everything that happens turns you into the person that you are. Um, and I, I enjoy my relationship with my half-brother and half-sister. And um, I think the biggest impact for me was that my mother was uh, devastated by it and stayed devastated. So my sister and I were brought up by um, a woman who was angry and, and, and depressed. And uh, and I guess that must have had the big impact. Yeah, that's uh, that's got to be hard for you as the kids in that scenario, as in you're building this relationship with your, your half-brother and half-sister and this other family while trying to, I presume, stay as sensitive to your mother's views uh, yeah, on it as well. Yeah, that's the thing. You, you start developing a, a split personality because... You go and have a great time. My, you know, my dad, he was working, but he was living in the south of France. And um, and he lived a very different... His kids from the second marriage had a very different life to mine and my sisters. We were on a sort of bar-at-home type estate. Um, and, and, and they had this sort of bohemian south of France life. And I'd go there, go for two or three weeks, have a brilliant time, come back, and then I'd have to slag everything off oh, right. to, to my mum. <laughs> I wasn't so great over there. Kind yeah, of thing. no, no, no. <laughs> How did your family react, though, to that coming out, uh, to some of this being out in the world? That's interesting. Um, my dad was uh, a bit shocked, I think, at first, which um, surprised me because I thought I'd been terribly fair and kind and I could have really written a different version of that. Um, but you know, I wanted to respect his life and his family, and um, and I didn't think it was a good discipline in a way because it meant you didn't go up too many blind alleys about feelings and psychotherapy and stuff. Uh, my mum, she interestingly, I, she didn't ever have any argument with it. I think that she recognised the truth of it, it to a certain extent mm. and that you know she enabled football in a way that she didn't enable anything else in my life she disapproved of my music she even disapproved of me spending too much money on books or having my head stuck in a book but there was something about the football that um you know she got into she looked out for the scores um she once went and queued for tickets for me you know that that kind of thing I think maybe because I was uh, growing up in an all-female house and maybe uh, she thought that's the one thing she could help me with was was to be a teenage boy. 
She also obviously named the cats after a couple of the players. I think that was me. Yeah, I, I, was, I was presuming you might have had a hand in that. Why yeah. Liam Brady is the, the hero of this book, certainly in a footballing sense. And I went back and, and read it again. It's a short enough chapter on Brady, but it is the love you have for this guy and the admiration. What was it about Brady for you? Well, first of all, you've got to put it in the context of Arsenal in the 70s, which um, it was pretty dour. Uh, a lot of the time, the double winning team, apart from Charlie George, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, beautiful football played. And then suddenly we had this guy who was, you know, one of the most creative midfield players in the world, uh, amazing goals, amazing left foot, had come through the youth team, which is always important to mm-hmm. um, fans yeah. of a club. Um, but if he'd stayed there, I don't know. I probably would have got used to him. But it was the agony of him leaving um, when he was young, really. And he was probably 24 or 25 when he went uh, went to Italy. And, um, and then they just sort of never really found anything like him until probably a good 10 years after he'd gone. Yeah, but what's interesting about that is normally in that situation, right, you would imagine a football supporter absolutely sticking the knife into the player who's left. Oh, he's gone off, he's taken the big money in mm. Italy. I'd you, say maybe he never comes back. But that's not the that's not the case here. It's very much you're you're pining for him even long after he's gone. Murph, sorry, what do you want to say? You know, even like uh departing for Italy has a certain romance to it. You know, it's not like no, he, exactly. it's like he joined Everton. You know, he went mm. off to Italy to, you know, follow his dreams and, you know Well well of course a year later Stapleton went to Man United. And he got slaughtered. Um, I can remember the first time he came back. He was still, I, th- I remember him shaking his head because the whole of the North Bank was singing. Do you remember that old advert? Which became a football chant. Well, it was, you're just a greedy C, Stapleton, Stapleton. So, you know, he was a big hero as well. But because he went to a rival, he was never forgiven. Also, you can't watch it. You know, that was the other thing. He'd just gone. Yeah. He'd vanished into thin air. There was no Italian football. Yeah, he signed for Maris. Like, that's what it might as well have been in, you know, 1980. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. yeah, so. <laughs> we wish him the best on his uh, intergalactic uh, football <laughs> yeah, career. Yeah, exactly. All right, Nick, we'll see if your love of Liam Brady can help earn you a few points when we assess your sporting life. There's loads more to talk about on Second Captain Saturday with Nick Hornby after the break. Second Captains on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You're listening to the first episode of a brand new series of Second Captain Saturday. Owner Murph here with the brilliant Nick Hornby. Nick, you've spoken so well already about music, about football. I wanted to ask you about your screenwriting and how that works because you've been nominated for a couple of Oscars for Best Adapted Screenplay, including, as I mentioned earlier, for Brooklyn. That's another one that will chime with our audience today. Just the whole concept of it, particularly as a novelist yourself, how do you go about adapting another novelist's work for the screen? Well, first of all, I love doing it. Um, I realise that one of the things is however different you try and make your books. Um, you know, I haven't written a sequel to anything and it's always a new set of characters. 
hopefully newish stories. Uh, about halfway through, I think, oh God, it's me again. Um, <laughs> because you, you can't help but reach the limits of your own taste, character, psychology. Um, and, and it always feels a bit like the end of the Truman Show, you know, when he's rowing away and clunks against Right, I'm going miles this time, then boom, oh, it's me again. Um, and, and the adaptations I've done, I think I couldn't have written this, uh, but I can. Um, I can write dialogue. I, I know how to dramatise. Um, so I, I, it, it's like a little door opening in someone else's head and me having the room to wander around in there and, and do something fresh. Yeah, it sounds like acting, in a way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm acting. <laughs> mm. I mean, I, I can only presume that the last person you want to talk to or hear from as you're adapting a novel like you did with uh, Colm Tobin's uh, Brooklyn, the last person you want to hear from is the writer of the original work. The The idea of you picking up the phone and saying, listen, Colm, I'm sorry, but like, what you're do you mean? You're not to bring him on, are you? Yes, nah, Colm, join us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You haven't seen him for five years. Come on in, Colin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have Chippy Brady coming on in a couple of minutes as well. So don't <laughs> worry, it's a full on This Is Your Life. I I really want the author to be happy, first of all. I mean, that's really important to me. Not least because you hope that the film has some kind of successful life and that the author will be helping you to promote or helping everyone else to promote the book. And, and if he wants to dump all over it, then you're not doing yourself any good. So, um, you know, I, I, I wanted Colin to like what I'd done and I sent him drafts so that he could, um, he could, right. he could give me notes. Uh, but he was, he was incredibly good about it and understood that in the process it had to be something slightly different. So he helped me with Irishisms mostly. Um, but it's, the other thing I love about film is it's such an incredibly collaborative process. You know, it's not just me and a director, it's me, a director, and actors. Producers are incredibly important because before the director comes, you're really only working with the producers. Um, and then, you know, these guys who like edit and write music, they're really important too. And, and uh, any one of them can ruin a movie and mm. when when something works like Brooklyn it's because everyone was at the top of their game and I love being able to go to a cinema and take pride in the work because I can't do it with my own stuff really I always look at it and think oh I could have done better than that well, why because it's all you uh, as opposed to being part of a team exactly and um uh, and the first time I saw Brooklyn you know, I couldn't believe what Saoirse had done. I couldn't believe what John Crowley had done. And, and I just thought, oh, you know, what, whatever merits the script had, this is fantastic. And I, I loved it so much. How did you so accurately reflect the Irish emigrant experience? How do you go about researching that and getting that right? I mean, you did mention there that Colm Dubin would have helped you with some Irishisms. Uh, well... The, we looked up lots of things. The internet is an incredibly mm-hmm. resourceful thing. You can see photos of Ellis Island and all the things that happen when people arrived in New York. Um, so there's that. But really, the thing that you have to get right is the feelings. Um, and it's the feelings that, uh, in, in a way, they don't require research. You, you, they require empathy. 
and and to put yourself in Eilish's position as you know you've gone all that way you can't get back again you know just thinking those things all the time um it it's it, homesickness is much harder now really because we are so connected you, you can talk on zoom to your parents you can <laughs> you, you can leave this morning and be there this afternoon wherever it is pretty much um but that absolute seismic shift uh where it takes you weeks to get somewhere and you can't really afford to go back again um they're incredible things to think about so you 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 think about them metaphorically really and i had things like we've all had like going to university even you think something about this is changing me forever you know it's changing my relationship with my family it's changing my relationship with my friends at home um so everyone's got bits in them that they can draw on nick you've written one of the most impactful sports books of all time now comes the time to talk about your own sporting abilities so this answer can be as cliched as as you want to make it was it your dream to play for arsenal i think one of the great things about sport is its clarity the arts are a mess there are people writing who are making a living writing who can't write there there are people writing who are geniuses who can't get published um same with music same with painting all of it but no one ever talks about an underrated 100 meter runner (laughs) (laughs) it's like well yeah he was ninth but he's better than that no he's not he's ninth and um and with football there comes a point where you think, yeah, I want to play for Arsenal. And then very slowly you think, hold on, I'm the sixth best in my class. Yeah. And and the best in my class isn't getting into the school team. And the best in the school team, no one's asking him to play for Manchester United. Mm. I was so, like you, I was too much of a realist. I, I had it had it in my yeah. head from when I was 10. Of course I'm not playing for Ireland. Or, of course, I'm, yeah. Whatever it might uh, be. I think my boys... My kids are the same, you know, it's like it started that way. It's like, I could probably do it, couldn't I, Dad? And you go, yeah, yeah, probably, because you know you don't have to say anything. Mm. They'll get there in the end. There's a funny story, though. When my kids were at primary school, um, I went to pick them up one day and the older one said, look at, look at these two, Dad. And there were these two kids playing in the playground. Couldn't get, no one could get the ball off them. They were super quick. And... Um, and I said, yeah, but, you know, it's primary school. They're a long way off. He said, they're brilliant, Dad. They're going to be professional. And then about five years later, I came in from work. He said, Dad, do you remember those two boys um, from the playground? I said, yeah. He said, they just won the World Cup with England. <laughs> <laughs> they, All they won the, for un- talent. Yeah, yeah. The under-18s under World Cup. Oh, they were wow. in the team. <laughs> wow. So I thought, I'm going to shut up now. I don't know anything. You have written like the best chapter about this exact thing, like the Gus Caesar chapter in Fever Pitch is like yeah. the perfect distillation of how sport is a brutal industry, but it is a meritocracy. And it Gus, is a you, meritocracy. Briefly for anyone who, who doesn't know the chapter, Gus Caesar was a much maligned Arsenal player who was like slated by his own fans. And you kind of put yourself into the shoes of Gus Caesar and said, this guy grew up, he was the best player on every team he's ever played on. And it just turns out he's not good enough for this level, but he's better than 
you know, like, yeah, like literally yeah. everyone. He's just better yeah. than everyone yeah, yeah. except like the tiny cohort of footballers in the first division in England at that time. And I think that that is, you know, like that's kind of. The, and even the, the, then, I think it was mentality, not talent. Yeah, 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 and that's it. You know, like everything has to be right. So, what position, if you were a footballer, I mean, who would you compare yourself to as a player? I'm, th- I'm thinking. I don't know why. I'm thinking Dennis Bergkamp, maybe a bit of flair, but you know, uh, some sharp mm. elbows if necessary. My my favorite, the one I identified with most, I think ever was Pires. Mm. Uh, you know, who wasn't lightning fast, but had the ball at his feet the whole time. Shot, passing, everything. He was fantastic. I played a lot of football teams, a lot of five-a-side teams. Yeah. Played football until I was in my 40s, and then my knees started going, but yeah. You did some cross-country running as well, Nick, I've been, I've been yeah, told. Yeah, I was, I was in the school cross-country running team, and then um, I was asked to run, wait for it, for northeast Berkshire. Not the whole of Berkshire, but northeast, <laughs> which, yeah, it's quite a populated area, so it's not like there's nothing. Uh, and I ran for northeast Berkshire, and then I think around about 14... I developed a taste for the old number six cigarettes um, <laughs> and, um, you know, out, out the back in the alley with the other reprobates at school. And it turned out it didn't help your cross country. Um, <laughs> and I, was, I was puffing a bit towards the end and then I, I quit. Go on then, give us, give us your, your highlight, your football highlight. It's quite simply that I scored the best goal that's ever been scored on a five-a-side court. <laughs> this is a big claim. Big claim, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm an honest man, <laughs> um, and I've never seen anything better. There's a couple of people at the time said they'd never seen anything <laughs> better. Uh, it was it was unbelievable. It was quite a long way out. I hit it on the volley. Um, I think the keeper had punched it. Maybe it had even come off the bar, went looping up in the air cracked it as hard as I could, flew in under the angle uh, from quite a tight angle. So it was like Van Basten, but probably a bit further out and more powerful. (laughs) (laughs) We remember your idiot. That's the closest I've seen to my goal, uh, (laughs) but it, it wasn't really it. There's a lot to work with here. I'm, I'm expecting a big yeah. score. Just to, yeah, exactly. Just to send a message to all Nick's rivals now through the rest of the series. Is, does what, it... what's, what's the highest score ever been given? Oh. Oh. Gabby Logan did compete at the Commonwealth, Commonwealth Games. Games. So I think yeah. we gave her 89 points, which included a 10-point deduction for being an actual athlete with a one-point margin of error. So Gabby Logan has set the bar intimidatingly high. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's up to you. If, if the best goal ever scored means nothing to you, then mark me below Gabby Logan. Right? I mean, it, it, it wasn't even the Olympics. It was the Commonwealth Games. Oh, I love this, Murph. The pressure's been... When the guests put the pressure on you, that's when I like to see if you crumble, which you normally do. This always I love this. I this is more intimidating, yeah. though. Others have tried yeah. to butter you up. You're just getting intimidated. Can you please, Kieran? can you please rank this sporting life of Nick Hornby? You don't understand. I could have had class. You don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have, then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Well, Nick, here's the deal. 
you're our first guest of the season and so you have a magnificent chance here to set your stall out early post a score that will intimidate your fellow competitors mentally get inside their heads have them beaten before they've even begun like Roy Keane staring down Patrick Vieira in the Highbury Tunnel oh. the deal here is I assess your all time sporting highlight pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements and then present you with a score out of 100 to discover okay. just where you stand on our greatest non-sports person sports person leaderboard thank you Last season's winner, Malcolm Gladwell. A runner, much like yourself, although some would say that his achievements outmatch even your cross-country prowess. In the Ontario Track and Field Championships of 1977, Gladwell beat a future Canadian Olympian in Dave Reed in the 1500 metres in a time of 4 minutes and 5 seconds, and that contributed to a winning tally of 88 points. But as you say, North East Berkshire is a bloody big place. Your Hold sporting on. highlight... Yeah. That's one, one yes. sport. Yeah, one yeah, one sport. Yeah, well, I mean, he was, he was good you two at this sports. Though. Excellence in two sports. So. <laughs> your sporting highlight is a goal scored in a five-a-side in your thirties, which you have described for us here as being like Marco van Basten's goal against Russia in the Euro '88 final, but from a narrower angle and with more power behind it. Now, and this is a ludicrous claim, <laughs> uh, but quite frankly, but I am all in favour of this sort of grandstanding bombastic Arsenal striker Malcolm McDonald, Super Mac, whose showboating ways and penchant for claiming goals that were patently not his <laughs> would surely approve. So you have truly learned from the best. I believe Malcolm McDonald is the sports person that best reflects your sporting ability. So it was my to- goal! Yeah. <laughs> so to conclude, keeping in mind what an unbelievable sport you've been this afternoon, and with one eye at the list of hopefuls coming up behind you, I award you... 77 points oh. and thank you most sincerely what about fever pitch <laughs> what don't don't put any more pressure on me 81 <laughs> points 81 points for Nick Hornby Nick you know I I wrote fever pitch running round and round a room <laughs> 81 points doesn't sound like you're happy with that Nick 83 I think let's say 83 Murph, you're literally getting intimidated up to 83 points. 83 points for Nick Hornby. <laughs> this has been your sporting life. <laughs> Thank you so much. Round of applause, please, for Nick Hornby. Another cracking tune for you on Second Captain Saturday. That is Wet Dream by Wet Leg. Moving swiftly on, Murph. <laughs> what a fantastic, uh, what a fantastic way to kick off the series. What an intimidating presence when it came to his score. I got bullied on. I, I there's no just, doubt about it. Uh, I mean, I've the... seen you charmed before by Dearney Griefer, yeah. but this this guy is just absolutely browbeating you into. I think six extra points in the end there. It, it was six extra points. I mean, I I was bullied into the last four. And then it was all-out intimidation for the last two then. Mm-hmm. I mean, I quickly folded and gave him 81. And then he just, he, he obviously realised just how weak I am and pressed home his advantage <laughs> in what I'd have to say is uh, quite uh, enthralling style. So well done, yeah, Nick Hornby. Yeah. Uh, I was beaten by a better man. I am concerned about the precedent it sets for the rest of the series, but well. we'll worry about that one next week, Kieran. Mm. We'll worry about that one next week. I don't need to ask you what you're doing for the rest of your weekend anyway. It's all Ireland final weekend and your county is in the thing. Yes, Owen. Uh, it's the first time goal I've been in all Ireland final since uh, 2001. So 21 long years. Uh, I've spent 19 of those years living in Dublin. So it's it's a big moment. Uh, I I don't 
quite know how to tell you how insufferable I've been at home all week. I can imagine. Maybe a clue is that my wife has decided to leave the country uh, tomorrow morning <laughs> and isn't returning until Thursday. And depending on the result, well, who knows? It could be a could little be longer. longer than that. Yeah. Uh, she is decamped. And quite frankly, I can't blame her. Uh, she came home from the pub on Thursday night and caught me watching A Year Till Sunday at half eleven at night. Uh, so, yeah. A wise course of action. I'm sure I'm sure we can all agree. I right, hope you enjoy the first episode of the new series. This has been a second captain's production for RTE. The show was produced by Killian Down. Our thanks to Jan Nilanagon and Elizabeth Laragy in RTE. Mark Horgan is the series producer for Second Captains. You can listen to us Monday to Friday at secondcaptains.com. Stay tuned to RTE Radio 1 for a Saturday sport coming up. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Second Captains on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude.